Welcome to the Mornings with Sue and Andy podcast for Thursday, February 29th. According to data from the Alberta government, opioids took the lives of over 1,700 Albertans in 2023, and experts don't expect 2024 to be any better. We get the latest on the ongoing crisis from Dr. Monty Gosh, Assistant Professor and Doctor of Internal Medicine at the University of Alberta. It is a first for Alberta. UCalgary opening an on-campus, substance-free, recovery-friendly drop-in space. We talk about the impact and the need for this space with Victoria Burns, Associate Professor of Social Work at the University of Calgary. And finally, it's our regular segment with Karen Gallagher-Burt, Mental Health Advocate and Social Worker with the Distress Centre. This time out, Karen talks about the therapeutic nature of music when it comes to our mental health and well-being. Opioids took the lives of 1,706 Albertans in 2023. That's according to data directly from the province of Alberta. Is 2024 on pace to be another deadly year? Joining us to get a picture of the opioid crisis in our province is Dr. Monty Gosh, Associate Professor and Doctor of Internal Medicine, Disaster Medicine and Addiction Medicine at the University of Alberta. Good morning to you, Dr. Gosh. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. That is a, a, a horrific number, more than 1,700 Albertans dying in 2023. What's the current state of the opioid crisis in our province? How would you say, you know, in terms of, of how bad is it right now? Is it worse than we even think and know and what we hear in the media? Uh, absolutely. So what I would like to sort of frame it as is that we're seeing more deaths due to the contaminated drug supply right now than we are seeing car accidents, heart attacks, and homicides combined on a per day basis. So this is way higher than anything else. It's dropped the life expectancy of the average Canadian from 82 to 78 years of age. Uh, And it's dropped the average life expectancy of our indigenous population by almost 10 years. So this is a, a huge situation right now. Grim, grim stats, Monty. Uh, before we get to you know how we address this issue and how 2024 looks to be shaping up in the eyes of the healthcare professionals and you know government officials, it's always in comparison. So when we talk about those high numbers in 2023, how does that year compare to previous years in the province? So 2023 was our worst year by far so far with the with the drug poisoning crisis. And uh, we expect, based on modeling studies done by the Public Health Agency of Canada, that uh, if we do our best and try everything we can, we may be able to sort of reduce those numbers by a slight bit, but we'll never get back down to where we were prior to the pandemic. Uh, so the toxic drug supply is even more contaminated than it was before. We're seeing new compounds enter the drug supply, such as xylazine, which is an animal tranquilizer, benzodiazepines, which are depressants, uh, as well as new novel forms of opioids, such as nitazines, uh, which are novel compounds that we haven't quite seen as of yet. So we're, we're headed for for even more of a situation in the near future. So is it that, that, you know, dirty drugs or contaminated drugs, as you say, is that what is killing people or is it that they, they make them more addictive or exactly what is it? It's It's... The, the sort of cocktail combinations that we, we're seeing with these drugs. So, for instance, sometimes we'll see xylazine mixed with carfentanil, which is a very, very deadly concoction. Sometimes we'll just see xylazine with benzos and fentanyl, which is less toxic than carfentanil, for example. Um, it's just different mixes and matches of different compounds that we're seeing on a regular basis. And it, it makes it highly, highly unpredictable. People's level of tolerance towards these drugs changes. Uh, and, uh, and, and that's sort of what's causing our current situation. 
I, I know that when you talk about op- opioid-related deaths, opioid addiction for that matter, it knows no borders. But yes, we're talking and focusing on Alberta. So I'm wondering, are there any key factors or unique factors that contribute to this epidemic in our province? So we are very close to British Columbia, and a lot of our drug supply is coming across the, the provincial border. We know that drugs sort of shift, for the most part, uh, from the western part of the pro- uh, country, I should say, towards the east. Uh, but we are starting to see sort of weirdness in that. And what I mean by that is like xylene, for example, is typically something we see more in the east of the country. Uh, and we're starting to see it more and more in Alberta, for instance. Um, we're seeing a lot of... of nitrazines, for example, that are coming in from the eastern part of the country as well. So things are shifting to the drug supply, and it's hard to see exactly what that is. Is it new drug cartels that are entering the market? Uh, Is it uh, drug cartels that are being removed from the market and something else is coming and taking its place in that vacuum that forms afterwards? Um, I mean, that's one part and aspect of this. I mean, some might say that there's a difference in philosophy in terms of how we manage uh, the opiate epidemic here in this province in comparison to other provinces. But regardless of, of our, you know, Alberta versus BC versus what's going on out east uh, and different approaches from different governments, we're seeing throughout the country that there is a rise in overdose deaths. And it's not relenting per se. Uh, and I think what really needs to happen is we need to have a coordinated effort to deal with this. We need a multi-ministerial group to come together to deal with this crisis because it's not just on the shoulders of Alberta Health and, and the new Ministry of Addictions and Mental Health to take care of this. A lot of this is related to housing, for example, income support, uh, poverty. Um, and so it requires a lot more effort and coordination amongst different ministries. Are, you know, when it comes to healthcare professionals, doctors, etc., is there a way for them to help more? I mean, I know I'm sure most physicians would do whatever and absolutely whatever they can, but to contribute to, you know, the province and, and maybe a lack from the province and the, and the government, what do physicians themselves, what can you do as healthcare professionals? So one of the big things that us as physicians can do is we can manage opiate use disorder through the use of of prescribed medication. So this includes medications such as methadone, buprenorphine, uh, slow-release oral morphine. These are sort of our gold standards in treating opiate use disorder. And there's been a big push to have almost every physician in this province trained for that. But we're still seeing that there's some physicians who are not comfortable with these medications. They still need additional training uh, and they still need support. So we need to keep pushing that. But I think one of the other big things that we can do as physicians is avoid stigmatizing this population. Many of us grew up in an era, or were trained in an era where we would uh, think that addiction is a moral failing. It was a personal choice. It's a behavioral issue. And that is not the case. It very much is a disease process like diabetes and hypertension, works on the, on the brain pathways. It is a dysfunction in an organ, the brain. So we therefore need to treat it as such, and we need to destigmatize this population. I think that's the number one thing that any uh, of us physicians, as well as the general population, can do is treat this as a disease process, not as a criminal activity. Mm. Dr. Gosh, thank you so much for your time. We appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Dr. Monty Gosh, Assistant Professor and Doctor of Internal Medicine, Disaster Medicine, and Addiction Medicine at the University of Calgary.
And the University of Calgary has opened an on-campus, substance-free, recovery-friendly drop-in space. It's a first for Alberta. Joining us to talk about the impact and the need for this space on campus is Victoria Burns, Associate Professor in the Faculty of Social Work at the University of Calgary, as well as being Founder and Director of UCalgary Recovery Community and Recovery on Campus Alberta. Thank you so much for joining us, Victoria. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Can you break it down for us? First in Alberta, explain what this space actually is. So this space houses the University of Calgary Recovery Community Program. And our program consists of one-on-one support with social workers, peer support, mutual aid meetings. We also have substance-free events, social events, and... We also house Recovery on Campus Alberta, which is funded by the government of Alberta, and that is to scale what we're doing at the University of Calgary to 26 post-secondaries in Alberta. I'm wondering, Victoria, it sounds fantastic, but before, you know, a center like this was, was created, where did students go? Where did, you know, I'm not sure faculty members are welcome as well. Where did they turn? There really wasn't a place for them. Uh, I can speak from my own experience as a longtime student who struggled with addiction. There was nothing on campus. There wasn't anything peer-driven as well. And we know that peer support when it comes to stigmatized issues like recovery, addiction recovery specifically, are so important for long-term recovery. We need treatment centers. We need professionals to help people, but we also need our communities of work and play uh, and study to be friendly and recovery-threatening. And traditionally, universities have been recovery-threatening environments. Why is that, Victoria? Because is it because you know we sort of have this this image in our head of a university campus? Everyone is uh, cheery and happy and studying, and things are going beautifully. And really, it's it sometimes can be quite the opposite because the anxiety, the stress, the the pressure is so great on these kids, right? Absolutely. It is. um, I don't know if either of you have been uh, a student in university as Mm -hmm. well, but there is a lot of peer pressure. There's a lot of partying happening uh, and it's not it's not moderate drinking or drug use often. It's binge drinking. Uh, So that that's something that we we, is still a major issue on campuses. And for people who can drink in safety and use drugs in safety, it's fine but a lot of people can't we know from research approximately one in four students will experience a substance use disorder Uh, and so that 18 to 24 age group are particularly at risk because their brains are still developing and they're finding their sense of self and identity so we're here to normalize the idea that you can have a fun time and not need to get intoxicated so when we talk about this recovery community hub, I'm lasering in on the word hub, Victoria. So is this kind of a kind of a satellite when it comes to, to getting some help, a, a conduit? Would students or faculty move on to a, another, I guess you'd say, service? Or can everything be done on campus now? Yeah, so we, we're a physical dedicated space. We're actually attached to resident services, which is on the west end of campus. It's a beautiful, open concept space with some closed offices so it's a drop-in center students and staff can come monday to friday 8 30 to 4 30 we're open we do have some after hours meetings and 
we can schedule supports at different times if that fits the schedule of, of, of people. So we're really a one-stop shop. We also have harm reduction resources that people can come and get. We have naloxone trainings that we offer, um, and we have yeah lots of harm reduction supplies. And we're essentially operating at that intersection of recovery, harm reduction, and prevention. We are an institution of education, so we offer trainings. It's called a recovery ally training. So not only are we helping people in recovery or seeking recovery or recovery curious, but also allies. And that's what we see a lot as well is friends and family members who come to us and say, hey, I have a roommate who, you know, is using more cannabis than they used to and not going to classes anymore. I don't know how to help. So we teach people how to approach people in a non- um, a non-judgmental way mm-hmm. and use stigmatized or not using stigmatizing language, etc. Yeah. So it's an innovative. I think it's you know really important and and that we talk about it too. So thank you so much for bringing this to our attention, Victoria. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Thank you, Victoria Burns, associate professor in the Faculty of Social Work at the U of C. check in with our friend Karen Gallagher-Burt, mental health advocate and social worker who works at the Distress Center. Good morning, Karen. Good morning. We are playing that song because that is Karen's wake-up song. Run the world, girls. Talking about them all morning. <laughs> the best songs to wake up to, to get you up and out of bed and get your blood pumping and that's your jam. Well, and it's really quite scientific. Honestly, if you wake up to a good song like that or one that really makes you excited, they say calm is better, but eh, I'm not a calm person. Um, so, <laughs> I know you're not. But when you wake up to something like that it actually gets some of your hormones going right away really? your happy hormones yep i like it it's a great tune too and yeah. i mean this is a complete aside you know we we have you in and we have serious topics that we've determined but the power of music like for mm. example uh, my, my daughter's going through a tough time right now you know socially and you know relationship wise and for me when i've gone through tough times music is just yes. such a tool yeah it actually it makes you emotional you can feel things with it i remember as a kid and i'm dating myself sitting up on new year's and listening to the top 100 songs and taping them on cassettes yes, yes. and so that and you'd have that list and you felt like you were connected so every one of us can tell what was the best song or the album in your grade 12 year um those kind of things so music has huge power to help with emotions mm-hmm. but also to stir them when you need i say a good cry take out some for me i take out some beatles music or um because that was my parents for me it's barbara streisand is it oh barbara a little barbara huh (laughs) yeah that's good all right we can do we can do a a a A colon exactly we can swing together (laughs) (laughs) oh well um but it's not bad to feel the feels right especially if you're feeling down yep yeah sometimes you need to let it feel the feels i describe it like a pimple you need to pop it Honestly, it's true. But, you know, if you're feeling bad and you're feeling sad and down, yeah. there's nothing better than a good cry. And yeah. you need to find your place and your space that allows you to do that. If you yeah. don't want to do it in front of anybody else, that's okay. Yeah. Find your place to do it. and yeah. you Because ha- it, it, it will make you sick inside if you don't let it out. You can't. If you hold on to it, I mean, we, there's no science behind this at all. But they say that, you know, this ulcers, things like that. But yeah. honestly. Who hasn't from, seen that in their lives, right? Exactly. And we all hold hold that kind of stuff somewhere. So some people, it's stomach aches. Some people's headaches. I know I get headaches. Um, But when you hold the emotions in, it's not good. Yeah. 
Wow, it's interesting because, yeah, indeed, uh, the emotions. And, and that's the other thing. Holding, I, I think maybe even if I can use this uh, mm-hmm. uh, question in, in an area to get you this question, holding in the negative emotions is, is one thing, in the, in the downtrodden, the world is against me. But also that communication piece, if you have something you're excited about, we talked with Dr. Ted Jablonski, our on-call family physician, about loneliness. Yeah. It's so important to yeah. not just talk about what's bothering you, but what you want to celebrate. 100%. And if you have, it's interesting, um, at the crisis center, we have the calls, text, chats, and you do get some people who have nobody else in their life and something good, so hap- good, something news, good happens. Right? They'll call and share really? that with you as well. Oh, I love that. So it is, I mean, it's not all doom and gloom, right? It's yeah. um, There are people that we are their network um, and they call us up because something has happened in their life good bad just something and they call up to say hey i just wanted to let somebody know because you've got to get it out yeah yeah. you've got to share it good i like that well we completely um you know went off topic because you were coming in and we can touch on it certainly before you go um your thoughts on the online harms bill it's bill c63 the canadian government's new bill to try and protect kids and prosecute hate crimes your thoughts on it do you know i i can't help but agree with it there's no two ways about it Mm -hmm. Always my concern is, um, does it have any legs? Yeah, and, how do you and, enforce it, right? And so the idea of it's good because when you introduce something new, then there's lots of conversation. Then hopefully it goes into schools. It go, becomes part of um, how the teachers are trained, how those who associate with kids are trained, um, that this is available and that you need to make sure that your kids are safe. However, the, for me, that's one that doesn't have a lot of legs. And that's my concern is that how do you enforce that? What do you do with that? When we know actually just reading about one of your colleagues, Mercedes Stevenson. Yes. And, you know, here's someone who has been getting hate mail and um, terrible and, emails. And, and had to go to the police about and it. And had to go to the police about it. And then that person's still doing it again now that they're out. Mm-hmm. And you go, okay, what, where are the legs? And that's someone who is that's um, high an profile, adult. right? Yeah. Um, an adult who has some things in control. Mm-hmm. And in reality, I mean, the justice legal system, you can have some debates about that. Is it a legal system or a justice system? True. Yeah, yeah, but there, there's the thing, right? I, I guess that a bill like this does give teeth and gives pathways to kind of right these wrongs. But yep. technically, it's it's still on us and it's still on parents and educators to monitor yep. and, and to know when to walk away, what sites to, to maybe not be on. So that personal responsibility, not yeah. relying on the government. Yeah, yeah. And, then, and that's where it gets tricky because parents, honestly... Yes, you need to keep your kids safe, but how much control do you have? And where they're, are you actually looking? They're way looking? smarter than we are. Well, they're smarter than we are. I mean, I don't know how many times my sons, I'd shut the router off at night so we wouldn't be gaming in the middle of the night, and he'd find a way to turn it on. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and so I look at those things. Our kids are smart. Yeah, they are. Especially when it comes to technology. And they don't realize, because their peers are, that's, that's their way of life, is online. And they don't realize that there's some real negatives to that. And, you know, that also relates back to yesterday being Pink Shirt Day, anti-bullying yep. day, right? And and certainly a lot of the, of the bullying happens online. So we just have to be on it as best we can. And even if you can't be on all their social media mm-hmm. platforms, you got to talk to them about it. 100%. I will say... My kids are in their 30s, and I remember asking my son, what's, we, what's one thing we didn't do well? 
as a parent. And he gave me two things. Well, and I asked for one, he gave me two. <laughs> Thanks. Uh, <laughs> Thanks, kid. Um, so the first one was is that we did not, uh, we rescued him too much. Oh, that there were things wow. that, like school projects, that I would be up till 10 o'clock, 11 o'clock, helping him finish something. Right. And he said, you should have let me fail, Mom. He said, you should have right. let me experience what it was like to not fail. He said, and the other part was is that we tried our best to be involved in the online stuff, particularly I became a gamer when my son was 10 <laughs> so that I understood gaming. He said, but there's still, he said, in the background, there's so much more that you don't know. He said, you probably should have put more restrictions on me. Really? Wow. That's crazy. That's and then my son's 34. Yeah, so he's telling me that I should have done those reflection. things. Reflection. Huh. And so yeah. then what you did was you went to his house. He's 34 and you unplugged the internet and said, there, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you so much, Karen. We appreciate Pleasure. it. Always. <laughs> Love our chats. Karen Gallagher-Bird, mental health advocate and social worker working at the Distress Center. Distresscenter.com. And again, 24 hours a day. It's chat or text at uh, 266. 4357 that's 266 help